wherever you fall on, on the stand he's taken, um, it's well-intentioned, well-reasoned, and uh, he means it. So um, early on, I think he was getting some critiques about being disingenuous or wanting attention, and I think that's knowing how introverted he is. That's the furthest thing from the truth. I don't. I don't think he's. I think he's doing this for all the right reasons. And um, I respect Cap. I. I, I don't. We're not friends, but um, we were teammates, and uh, yeah, I, I absolutely support everything he's done. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we're coming to you a couple of days late because we recorded an entire show last week and then the weekend happened. Donald Trump's speech on Friday, the response by NBA and NFL players on Saturday, and then between 1 and 200 NFL players taking a knee, linking arms, standing in resistance to Donald Trump, announcers, coaches, owners. I mean, it has been just an absolute maelstrom of madness at the intersection of sports and politics, like nothing I've ever seen in my life, and arguably like nothing ever seen in terms of its depth and reach in the history of this country. So we decided to scrap last week's show in its entirety and just completely redo the show. Now, first and foremost, I got to tell you how excited I am about our guest this week. We are talking to Chris Borland, who people might remember played for the San Francisco 49ers, had an absolutely kick-ass rookie year, and then just walked away from the National Football League. He walked away because of concern about brain injuries and the general politics and ethos of the sport. Remember, he also played with Colin Kaepernick. So we are going to talk to Chris Borland about everything that took place this past weekend. I really am excited about this guest. But before we talk to Chris Borland, this is what I thought I'd do for this week's show. Because I know we have a lot of listeners who may not be necessarily big sports fans. They may not necessarily even be big politics fans. They may be people who just are on one side or the other. And then I know we got people who listen who love sports and politics and the way they come together. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually going to go through the weekend that was in the form of three columns that I've written in the last three days. And so what I want you to do is to try to put yourself in my position writing these things as they were happening in real time. Because I think what it reflects is how in such a rapid fire way the National Football League is actually trying to co-opt this resistance and co-opt these protests and turn them into something profoundly different than what Colin Kaepernick wanted them to be when he took that knee and up to this point sacrificed his career a year ago. So let's start with the first column. This is what I wrote on Friday, right after Donald Trump's speech in Huntsville, Alabama. It's exhausting to have a president who gets angrier at outspoken black athletes than at Nazis. It's exhausting how shameless he is about his bigotry and his toxicity. This is a president who never played football. He never served in the armed forces. He frets over what conclusions we draw from the size of his hands. His skin is thinner than the gossamer wings of a butterfly. He is the epitome of a bullying but frail brand of masculinity. He belongs in a psychological textbook as a case study, not in the White House. Just look at Trump's comments in their entirety about the current state of the National Football League from his speech, which should go down in history as the Huntsville, Alabama speech. And you know, a lot of folks 
are playing you Trump's actual words. I'm not going to make you actually listen to Donald Trump's voice here. And I'm going to instead take that bullet for you, my Edge of Sports listener, and read to you what it is he said. He said, Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners, when somebody disrespects our flag, to say, Get that son of a bitch off the field right now. Out. He's fired. You know, some owner is going to do that. He's going to say, That guy disrespects our flag. He's fired. And that owner, they don't know it. They don't know it. They're friends of mine, many of them. They don't know it. They'll be the most popular person for a week. They'll be the most popular person in this country. End quote. Jesus. A regular Frederick Douglass he is as a speechmaker. Um, then the very week that the autopsy of 27-year-old former New England Patriot Aaron Hernandez went public which showed that he had stage 3 CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Trump claimed that the game was too soft. The game he never played, remember, was too soft. He said, Today, if you hit too hard, 15 yards. Throw him out of the game. They had that last week. I watched for a couple of minutes. Two guys just really. Beautiful tackle. Boom, 15 yards. The referee gets on television. His wife is sitting at home. She's so proud of him. God, what a weird thing to say in the middle of that. His wife is sitting at home. She's so proud of him. They're ruining the game. They're ruining the game. That's what they want to do. They want to hit. They want to hit. It is hurting the game. End quote. This is Donald Trump, the violent fantasist who dreams of a physical supremacy he never achieved and has then spent his life expressing this insecurity and hostility through boardroom bullying and, of course, sexually predatory behavior. He hates women. He is violent towards women, and you hear that in his every word. He has lived his life in thrall to toxic masculinity, but lacked the ability to prove his manhood, quote-unquote, on the football field, and then dodge the armed forces, never attempting to prove his manhood, quote-unquote, on the battlefield. He's chosen instead to spend a lifetime tearing down the people who've dared stand in his path and the women who dared to say no to his predatory sexual advances. So you can call it irony, call it divine coincidence, but it's stunning that the day Trump publicly yearns for the time when football fulfilled his vicarious desires of physical domination, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos on Friday scrapped a key part of government policy on campus sexual assault. It's so on the nose a screenwriter would reject the scenario. But Trump's speech wasn't over, oh no. His radar, always firmly attuned to the worst impulses of his audience, turned his attention again back to black players who protest. And he said, But do you know what's hurting the game more than that? God, I hate reading this guy's words, but it's, it's, it is better than you having to actually hear them through your headphones. Um, when people like yourselves turn on the television and you see those players taking the knee when they're playing our great national anthem, the only thing you could do better is if you see it, even if it's one player, leave the stadium. I guarantee things will stop. Things will stop. Just pick up and leave. Pick up and leave. Not the same game anymore. Anyway. End quote. Look. Some could argue that this is just a case of a divisive autocrat going after the obvious targets of racial animus and of a base that doesn't care if nuclear Armageddon looms, doesn't care if their health care is taken away as long as they get their culture war. 
while Trump's party gets its tax cuts for billionaires. But whether Trump realizes or not, there's something else at play. These athletes are doing a lot more than sitting or kneeling or raising a fist during the anthem. They're offering up an alternative model for unity, justice, and even manhood. They're showing that what makes an adult is whom you can help, not who you can cuss, and certainly not who you can destroy for shameless and divisive political gain. Look at the work that's been done by Michael Bennett, Colin Kaepernick, Malcolm Jenkins, the Charlottesville scholarships just funded by Philadelphia Eagle Chris Long. The list goes on and on of NFL players attempting to use their platform to highlight a different path for healing this country. The anthem protest is just a means to that end, an effort to highlight the gap between the promises that the flag represents and the lived experiences of too many people in this country. This is a model of politics as well as manhood that threatens Trump's entire agenda of poisonous, divisive narcissism. To be silent in the face of this destructive person is to condone his actions. That is not an option. This president is a child bully, and bullies are emboldened by our silence. Okay, so that's what I wrote on Friday after the Huntsville speech. Then, after the Sunday protests, I wrote this column in kind of an incredible, euphoric, dizzying state of mind. Just still not quite sure what I had just seen in terms of the sheer numbers of players who were standing up to Donald Trump. So this is what I wrote then. And this piece was called, For the NFL, It Was Choose Your Side Sunday. The 1960s and 1970s saw a hurricane of political athletes. Legends like Muhammad Ali, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Kurt Flood, and Billie Jean King. But nothing, literally nothing in the history of sports and politics can compare to what happened on Sunday. Expressions of dissent broke out in every single NFL game during the playing of the national anthem. Some players kneeled, some sat, some raised fists, and some linked arms. But all of them were standing in opposition to Donald Trump. Announcers and commentators discussed their actions sympathetically. The booing one might expect from fans was actually sparse. Two anthem singers, a black man in Detroit and a white woman in Tennessee, took a knee during the last note of the song. How the hell did this happen? How did the sport that from ownership down has historically been associated with the most conservative politics see this tsunami of united discontent? It starts with Colin Kaepernick and it ends with understanding the brotherhood that exists in NFL locker rooms. I can say unequivocally from my reporting that while only a small group of NFL players joined Kaepernick in this protest last season, the respect he garnered throughout the community of players for doing it week after week for four straight months, weathering all kinds of brutal criticism, was deep. Kaepernick lit the match. It was kept alight earlier this season by players like Seattle Seahawk Michael Bennett, Malcolm Jenkins, Marshawn Lynch, a dozen members of the Cleveland Browns, and others. But gasoline was poured upon this flame by Donald Trump in Alabama. This is where we get to the question of solidarity. Donald Trump never played football and therefore does not understand what Michael Bennett calls the brotherhood. Football players are a tight-knit community. It is certainly not always a positive solidarity, this brotherhood, most pointedly seen in the reticence of players to speak out when a teammate commits an act of violence against women, as well as the pressure to play when hurt, which often comes from your quote-unquote brothers, not coaches. But this brotherhood also means that when someone threatens the livelihood of the players and disrespects their families, they will stand as one. 
from Trump's perspective, these players probably seemed like a smart target. Trump reserves his greatest venom for black people and women, as we have seen time and again, and certainly thought that going after wealthy black athletic dissenters was a clever move. But it didn't line up as he had hoped. First, the union came out strongly in defense of players and challenged management to do the same. Then team owners and Roger Goodell came out far less strongly, but still made it perfectly clear what side they were on. Even though their comments were not exactly fiery, they stood with the dissenting players. This matters when we consider just how many of these owners supported Trump in the campaign. Then this tumult spilled over into the Sunday morning shows. People like former NFL player Anquan Bolden was given a platform on This Week on ABC News to say, I don't like the hate speech that is coming out of Trump's mouth. Then there was the declaration of the entire Seahawks organization on team letterhead, which read, as a team, we have decided we will not participate in the national anthem. We will not stand for the injustice that has plagued people of color in this country. Out of love for our country and in honor of the sacrifices made on our behalf, we unite to oppose those that would deny our most basic freedoms. We remain committed in continuing to work towards freedom and equality for all." End quote. But even beyond these voices, there was also Fox announcer and Southern NFL icon Terry Bradshaw who lectured Donald Trump about the Constitution from the Fox pregame show saying, not sure if our president understands these rights, that every American has the right to speak out and also to protest. All of this speaks to the very intense, if at times deeply distorted sense of solidarity that exists throughout the league and at every level. This is what Trump lacked the capacity to understand. And as the divider in chief, he has painted himself into a corner because for one day, the NFL was united. The line of the day for me that explained all of it was said by ESPN NFL commentator and future Hall of Famer Charles Woodson. He said, this is choose your side Sunday. It really is. And what side are you on? When it comes to the NFL, that side does not involve standing with Donald Trump. In the 1960s, athletes made history. On Sunday, a new link was forged. So that's what I wrote on Sunday night. <laughs> Now let's take it to right now, this moment as I'm speaking to you. It is Tuesday, September 26th. I've been doing interviews about what happened on Sunday uh, pretty much consistently for the last 24 hours. Sleep is a long-forgotten memory. I spent more time Monday uh, in TV studios and radio green rooms with former wide receiver Dante Stallworth, who, by the way, was a guest on this podcast, a brilliant guy. But I seriously, I've seen Dante Stallworth more in the last 24 hours than I've seen my own kids. So I'm exhausted. But at the same time, I had to write one last thing that I want to read to you. And I was provoked to write this because of what happened on Monday night before the Monday night football game. And the sight of the entire Dallas Cowboys team, led by team owner and Trump donor Jerry Jones, taking a knee and then quickly rising before that national anthem. What is that about? Let's start with what Jerry Jones said afterward. And please, if you can understand what Jerry Jones is trying to say here, you're a smarter man than I. Jones said, Our players wanted to make a statement about unity, and we wanted to make a statement about equality. 
They were very much aware of that statement when made or when attempted to be made and in a part of the recognition of our flag can not only lead to criticism but also controversy. It was real easy for everybody in our organization to see that the message of unity, the message of equality, was getting, if you will, pushed aside or diminished by the controversy. We even had the circumstances that it was being made into a controversy. End quote. Look, this incomprehensible word salad aside, there is something, of course, valuable, something that I think is precious about people in the NFL showing unity in the face of Trump's grotesque bullying and transparent racism. But we should also see Jones's Hallmark card blather, as well as the NFL's incoherent unity commercial that they aired during the Sunday night game as a warning, a warning that the original reasons for these protests had nothing to do with Donald Trump or syrupy sentiment. On the Trump side, they are of course saying that these protests are about disrespecting the flag and the anthem while justifying Trump's profane, divisive rhetoric. We absolutely cannot allow this debate to become one of unity versus the flag or a liberal brand of bumper sticker patriotism, protest is patriotic, versus the Trumpian brand, stand or die. People like Jerry Jones and NFL commentator Roger Goodell and all the owners linking arms with their players are as complicit in obscuring the actual meaning of taking a knee as Donald Trump himself. It's a case of competing narcissism, searching and grasping Kardashian fashion for a fix of this particular spotlight. In contrast to these vulgar Caligulas, we have the proud silence of Colin Kaepernick, the person who first took that knee, whose continual unemployment stands as a stark reminder of the kinds of ideas too dangerous for the NFL to touch, ideas that Trump is too racist to engage. One is reminded of the chant that always rises during Pride, that Stonewall was a riot, aiming to recall that this celebratory corporatized parade started because LGBTQ people led by trans women of color stood up to police violence. We also need to howl to the heavens that the roots of taking a knee are the same. While Kaepernick is silent, his teammate on last year's 49ers, Eric Reed, wrote a tremendous op-ed for the New York Times about why he chose to take that knee with his quarterback. And the opening paragraph of this op-ed cuts through all the obfuscation and co-optation we've seen and makes it devastatingly plain. This is what Eric Reed wrote. In early 2016, I began paying attention to reports about the incredible number of unarmed black people being killed by the police. The posts on social media deeply disturbed me, but one in particular brought me to tears, the killing of Alton Sterling in my hometown of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. This could have happened to any of my family members who still live in the area. I felt furious, hurt, and hopeless. I wanted to do something, but didn't know what or how to do it, end quote. Look, this is what it's about. The knee started because of the killings of people like Alton Sterling and Philando Castile last summer. They were intolerable for anyone with a conscience. Protesting during the anthem was about highlighting that gap between what we're told that flag represents and people's lived experiences, and I can't say that enough. Whereas Kaepernick himself said a year ago, I am not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. There are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. Take someone like Michael Bennett of the Seahawks, who continued these protests in the NFL preseason less because Kaepernick is his friend than the fact that he was touched by the case of Charlena Lyles, a black woman in Seattle killed by police in her home in front of her children. 
These motivations cannot be forgotten because if we do so, we run the risk of also erasing Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Charlena Lyles, and everyone who has been killed by police and did not receive even a modicum of justice. To see someone like former NFL player Ray Lewis take not one knee, but two knees during the anthem after he has spent the last year attacking Colin Kaepernick and all players protesting police brutality serves less to raise consciousness than to provoke amnesia. I reached out to two people whose voices on this have more legitimacy than a boardroom of NFL owners. The first is Amir Loggins, who's the lecture organizer for Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camps, about whether he shared these concerns. And he said this to me before the Cowboys and Jerry Jones made their gesture. So Amir was on this. This is what he, he wrote to me. And by the way, Amir has also been a guest on this podcast, if you want to hear his voice for himself and what he has to say. Amir wrote to me, My fear is that the physical act of taking a knee will become so pop-culturally pervasive, so available for ubiquitous usage, that it will be stripped from its original spirit. We have a situation where those ostracizing the original players who knowingly were putting their careers on the line for the sake of social justice by taking a knee to bring awareness to systemic oppression and the police killing unarmed black folks with impunity are now taking a knee as a PR stunt. They are transforming a pure protest into poisonous posturing. The shit is whack, end quote. Then I asked Chris Petrella, who also works with Colin Kaepernick's Know Your Rights Camp, to develop political education curricula. And this is what he said, and Chris also wrote this to me, and it's, it's deep, so please listen closely on this. He said, I'm deeply concerned that the original political thrust of Take a Knee is being both diluted and recast through the shallow, simple, and ahistorical vocabulary of unity. This kind of political shift, however, is far from surprising. History has proven that white supremacy has a way of reframing the terrain of political debate, changing the goalposts, if you will, and policing the parameters of acceptable discourse when communities of color pose threats to its persistence. My sincere hope is that folks in the movement refuse to see the pointed and historical language of police violence, institutional racism, and white supremacy. To paraphrase James Baldwin, we white folks are trapped in a history we don't understand. Calling for unity flattens history and makes a mockery out of the passage of time. Unity does not heal. Truth does. If we're after truth and justice, then knowing our history might be a good place to start. End quote. It is so, so important for us to draw strength and inspiration from the people throughout the sports world standing up to Trump. But inside the movement, we do not need to be silent as we link arms. We need to turn to those alongside us and say the names of those killed by police. We need to say that unity matters, but not unity with those who would blackball Colin Kaepernick. We can never forget that this is a movement for those who, because of racism and state violence, can no longer speak for themselves. And so that's, I guess, my thought process is an evolution over the craziest 72 hours I've had in 15 years covering this beat. And I'm so glad we have someone on the line who can help us make sense of all of this. Former San Francisco 49er, Chris Borland. So Chris Borland, um, first and foremost, you know, I, I asked my listeners what they wanted uh, me to ask you. I put out some words to folks. And the first question a lot of folks had wasn't about what ha what's happening in the NFL, although, of course, I'm going to ask you about that. But people just want to know, how are you? Like, what are you doing right now? What are you doing with your time? And, and are you happy with, with your life in 2017? 
Well, I appreciate uh, their interest. Like just honest human concern people had for you. <laughs> uh, I'm doing well. Um, I just moved out to L.A. I'm literally driving out. I drove through the night last night. Um, and for about a year and a half there, after I quit, I kind of got pulled into this uh, world of advocacy and uh, did a lot of uh, for former players and some, some things for active and, and future players. Uh, most recently, I, I did a partnered with a researcher at UW-Madison and uh, did a pilot project exploring meditation's effects on, uh, on retired players. And we just wrapped up at the end of June. And it went really well. And subsequently, I, I've started a small company doing it with active players. So um, just getting up off the ground, but we're, um, we're integrating meditation into sports, which I think um, there's been some in, in the past few decades, but um, like our mutual friend David Megacy said to me years ago, I think we're at a place with the mind and sports that we were with weight training in the 60s um, today. So um, I'm excited about the future. And it, it, for me, it's a really, uh, I found myself in an agreeable place. Um, didn't really, wasn't uh, anxious to be a, a mental health advocate or, or to be, uh, you know, to critique the NFL. Um, I'd like to do something positive, And I found that. Wow. That's Kind of amazing. You may have to come back to do an entirely separate interview about meditation and sports. I'd, um, I'd, I'd love that. Yeah. So, so here's another question. Um, I mean, before we get to talking again, before we get to talking about just the the maelstrom of what's been going on over the last week, uh, you played, of course, with Colin Kaepernick uh, on the 49ers. and I, I've said this to people that if you had asked me 18 months ago who would have been the guy to be like the lightning rod at the intersection of sports and social justice? I, I never would have said, he wouldn't have been on my top 15 if I just had to guess of who that would be. And so I guess I want to ask you, when you were on the 49ers, a couple years back, uh, before all of this broke, before the knee and all of this, who was the Colin Kaepernick that you knew? And was there anything that you saw in his character or how he interacted with folks in the locker room that gave an indication to you of the kind of person who we see today? Well, I think I'm, I'm with you. I, I was surprised after um, being removed for it for a little while to see Cap take that stand. But I think it was an evolution in his thinking. Um, I was there for just one year, and I, I can tell you Colin was extremely hardworking, somewhat reserved, but always respectful. Um, I got along with him really well. Um, I think he was highly respected within the locker room, but um, far from outspoken. So to see him uh, evolve into taking this leadership role on this issue um, did come as somewhat of a surprise to me. Um, I, I can tell you from interacting with him for a year, and um, I know his former agent fairly well, um, that he's a very authentic person. So um, wherever you fall on, on the stand he's taken, um, it's well-intentioned, well-reasoned, and uh, he means it. So um, early on, I think he was getting some critiques about being disingenuous or wanting attention. And I think that's knowing how introverted he is. That's the furthest thing from the truth. I don't, I don't think he's, I think he's doing this for all the right reasons. And um, I respect Cap. I, I, I don't, we're not friends, but um, we were teammates and uh, yeah, I, I absolutely support everything he's done. Now you had a kick-ass rookie year, no doubt about it, but you were still a rookie, and you also were still on the defensive side of the ball, and here's Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback who took the team to the Super Bowl 
and all the rest of it. Uh, was he still somebody who you felt like was approachable, someone you could talk to, someone who interacted with you, or as a, as that sort of like rookie person on the team playing on the other side of the ball, did it seem like he was in a removed space from you? No, I don't. I don't think he was removed at all. Um, yeah, he was affable. He, um, you know, he had a lot of sponsorships, so he did all of these things and always dealt out the gifts pretty generously. So um, <laughs> I can remember once I, he had this uh, enormous box of Beats headphones, and uh, he, our lockers are by one another, and he just said, "Hey, take what, take however many you want." And I'm, you know, a rookie with uh, friends still in college, so I'm texting buddies, "Hey, you want some Beats?" and uh, <laughs> taking a, a, a duffel bag full, but. Uh, yeah, he was generous. He was affable. He ate lunch with everybody in the cafeteria. He he wasn't um, too big for his britches, and uh, I think he was grounded. I mean, he's from he's from Wisconsin. Um, that's uh, kind of the type of people you get oftentimes from Wisconsinites. Okay, note to self, make friends with people who have sponsorship with Beats. Okay, sorry, that's separate <laughs> from this interview. I'm just doing that. Um, Okay, so so now so now let's let's get to this past weekend. Um, were you surprised at all to see the breadth and size of these protests? No, I think after after Trump's comments on Saturday, um, you know, calling people who've uh, protested peacefully, uh, speaking out against priest brutality, to call them sons of bitches, um, you know, to say that they should be kicked out or, or fired. Um, no, I think when provoked players have to stand up for themselves wherever they fall on the spectrum of, of the, the the protests. So I wasn't surprised. I mean, the league's largely black. Um, in my opinion, Trump, a lot of Trump supporters um, are racist or condone racism, frankly. And uh, I think it's kind of coming to a head. And what, his comments Saturday I, I felt were ridiculous. Um, I very rarely get on Twitter, but I, I felt the need to say – you know, I've got two brothers in the army, and uh, they signed up to defend the Constitution. And um, saying that Cap exercising his First Amendment rights is in any way obscene, um, I think it's foolish uh, and inspired by hate, really. Mm. Now, as you mentioned, yeah, the league is uh, 68%, 70% African American. And yet you saw not only white players take part in these protests, but also, I mean, coaches, general managers, owners. You had broadcasters like Terry Bradshaw and Rex Ryan take Trump to the woodshed. I've been writing a lot about what I've heard Seattle Seahawks Michael Bennett refer to as the brotherhood in the NFL, about this idea of kind of like you attack one of us, you attack all of us. Is, 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 is this the best way, do you think, to understand why everybody came together on this and it wasn't just the black dissenting players who Trump wanted to demonize and isolate is is that the best way of understanding it that this NFL as community or do you think there's a even a, a more nuanced or a different way to understand it I think that's a central piece to it I do think there's a community um and to expand on that I think the act of togetherness um is just to show that we've got more in common than we than we are different uh this issue can be polarizing, and oftentimes in the locker room at high school, college, pro level, um, it, it's a cross-section of our society. You get people from every walk of life with every opinion, and um, to me, it's a beautiful thing because when you see a guy like Chris Long with the Eagles wrap his arm around uh, Malcolm Jenkins, um, you know, but his other hand's on his heart, I think um, wherever you wherever you land on it, whatever you think, uh, you know, the 
my brother in Baghdad's got more in common with Cap on his knee than uh, we're led to believe. Uh, it's not binary. I think it's nuanced. And uh, I love this, this show of togetherness because I think people like Trump and people on the fringes on the right um, so division. And it's just, it's a shame because it, we see it through this lens in the media and through public discourse, but in reality, um, we're all far more alike than, than we're allowed to believe by what we watch and what we listen to. And uh, unfortunately those that are in leadership. And help us out to like, understand what you think about even seeing like owners out there linking arms and even Jerry Jones taking a knee right before the anthem. Cause I've been trying to wrap my head around this because I mean, it's, there's something perverse about, you know, the very people who are not signing Colin Kaepernick to now be protesting against a candidate who many of them, like Jerry Jones and Dan Snyder, wrote million-dollar checks to. Like, so, so I guess I, I know it's tough to ask you to judge the sincerity of NFL football owners, but how do you even understand their role in this? Yeah, that's, that's a hard one for me. It is confusing. Um, it'd be great if you could get... <laughs> If you could get a Woody Johnson on your podcast and ask him, but people people that have uh, you know, donated millions of dollars to his campaign um, propped up a lot of the things that he said and done, and uh, yeah, you have to wonder. But um, I, I can't. I feel uncomfortable insinuating their beliefs. Maybe they've uh, they've had enough and are, are actually changing course, which would be a great thing. But a lot of the people that are showing respect for players um, supported Trump, and that's confusing. Um, it is a business. That's kind of the thing I always fall back on with the NFL is at the end of the day, it's about money and um, their viewerships, I think declined this year. I haven't played, paid close attention, but um, I think they'll do anything to, <laughs> to help the bottom line. So um, maybe politics are fickle in their mind. Well, let me ask you this, Chris, too, because, and I, I, I've been able to strike up a friendship with another former NFL player who lives in the DC area named Dante Stallworth. And I asked him a question and I'd love to ask you the same question. I said, Dante, if you were in the NFL right now, what would you have been doing after Kaepernick took that knee? What would you have been doing this year? And it really kind of like took him aback. And he was like, God, I, I haven't even thought of that. Because, you know, he said this, what Dante said is like, because once I retired, I was just out. So I haven't really put myself in. What if I was on that sideline? What would I have done? Because I don't even picture myself as that person anymore. So I guess I, that's my two-part question to you, Chris, is like, do you, do you still, can you still like feel it, feel that NFL thing, think, feel yourself on that sideline? And have you given any thought about what you would have been doing these past several weeks if you were still on an NFL team? What would Chris Borland have done on television? The, the moment I saw Cap take a knee, and then this, is, this doesn't get a lot of play, but um, Eric Reed joined him shortly shortly yeah. after and um you know to me i think eric's eric's move was really powerful because if it's just one guy um he can be written off but um eric is a leader um if, if you if you were going to define who eric reed was some of the first few things you'd say were family man and christian and and, and the like and um a fairly conservative guy so for him to step in and, and show support for cap um, i thought that was really powerful and when i saw this going on um i i thought exactly the question you asked what, what, what would i do if i was still in the 49ers um i think it'd be 
uh, inappropriate for me to pretend to understand what it's like to be a black man in America. Um, but I'd love to have the conversation with Cap and Eric and others um, and show my support for them. I think I mentioned Chris Long earlier. What he did makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I'd absolutely stand, but um, I think maybe an arm around or a hand on the shoulder of, of guys who are kneeling, um, so long as they're comfortable with that, um, would be a position I'd be comfortable with just because um, I understand both sides. I mean, I, I feel like my family is a good representation of both sides. I have two brothers who are veterans. One is deployed at the moment, and, um, you know, friends, a lot of my friends in college and the pros were, were black, and um, have just peered through the keyhole into the room of what it's like to be a, a black man in rural Wisconsin or in rural Ohio, and um, just to experience it vicariously through my friends, um, I, I believe it's very real. Um, I think if you read you know, James Baldwin and a lot of things that were going on 70 years ago, um, if we're real, I don't, I don't know how much has actually changed and uh, would like to show a way to support them. Um, and then also just to appreciate the nuance of the situation. Like I've said earlier, we've got so much more in common than we have that separates us. And uh, it's a shame that it's, that it's painted in this binary way. Um, what Colin did was never a flag protest. And I, I think semantics are important. Uh, he's protesting police brutality. And um, to paint it uh, as a flag protest is, is, doesn't do it justice. There's, there's more... Uh, there's more to it than that, and uh, I think there's important conversations to be had. But I, long story, I, but I, I would absolutely show support in some visible way. I'll just throw in that as difficult as these times we live in are, the fact that it's provoked a James Baldwin renaissance is one of the great side effects of this moment. So thank you for, for name-dropping. As much as we love Doug Baldwin on this show, James Baldwin – uh, is the number one Baldwin at Edge of Sports. But I, I also... There's enough room for both. Yes. <laughs> I want to live in a world <laughs> where the true Baldwin brothers are James Baldwin and Doug Baldwin. Um, let, and and let, let me ask you, ask you this, again, to put you back on that sideline. Say, and I'm asking you this out of discussions I've had with Michael Bennett. Like, say you had a black teammate come up to you and say, hey, um, I appreciate you putting a, a hand on my shoulder but if you take a knee alongside me, it'll just mean I'll get less crap after the game or less criticism because you'll you'll be shouldering some of that criticism. And so forget about not knowing what it's like to be black. I just want you to do it because it'll help me because I'll feel less pressure afterwards. Would you take a knee with a black teammate if, if they pointedly asked you in such a way? I just – I do think – I can't separate it from uh, not knowing what it's like to be – a black mm -hmm. man or a black woman and a child in America, because for me to, to take a knee would feel disingenuous because I haven't experienced personally uh, what I know my friends have. And uh, that's, that's, that is a hard one. Um, I, I think like what I said earlier, I would stand and uh, show support in another way just because um, I don't, yeah. I don't, buy, I don't buy into the narrative that, you know, I think it's, it leads into chauvinism to say that um, the flag is solely representative of the military. I mean, it represents everybody. And uh, so I, I don't – it's not a, this blind, dogmatic um, reason to stand. Um, for me, it's, it's more personal um, with family and friends. And, and uh, so I, I think I would stand. And, and I think – I'd hope that whoever asked me that question would understand um, mm -hmm. 
that my standing isn't isn't that I, I'm not in solidarity with with what they believe in, but I, I would feel uh, like it'd be a betrayal of some people that are close mm-hmm. to me that uh, have sacrificed a lot. Let, let me and one last question about the brotherhood that we were talking about before is you know you speak about that NFL brotherhood. People have spoken to me about that all the time. When you ch- when you chose to walk away, you actually were the first player to do that. You know, because before before you, Chris, is like, and I remember talking to folks about this, the list of players who walked away as opposed to being dragged away or limping away. I mean, you could count it on one hand. I mean, it was like Jim Brown, Barry Sanders. And other than that, it was people who were told to leave as a po- or people who left after winning a Super Bowl as opposed to people who just said, you know what, I'm worried about my mind and my physical health, and so I'm walking away. Since you've done that, Chris, I mean, there have been a wave of players who have walked away when they still had money to make and they still had teams that were interested in them. And so much so that it, I feel like it's almost become normalized when you see a player retire at 28. It's like a news story for a day when a young player walks away. Um, but when you walked away, did people treat it? Was the brotherhood still there for you? People understood? Or was it seen as almost like a betrayal of the NFL? I think you, uh, I experienced the entire spectrum. Um, I will say that uh, it was largely more amicable amongst active players because whether or not they agree, they understand, um, if not intellectually, viscerally, what they're experiencing. So more often than not, I I got the, uh, hey, bro, I, I get it. I disagree. I'm going to keep playing. Um, and we're cool. Um, you never, I rarely get that outside of football. Um, now that's not to say within the game there weren't guys who say, "Is this a family show, Dave?" <laughs> it's 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 a <laughs> it's a family show, as in you and me are family. So say whatever you like. Sure, I mean you know I I, I of course within the game there's guys who say you know, you're a fucking pussy, you're this and that. Um, I think you experience that in any walk of life. There's some people that'll just be like that. Um, but no, I think it was uh, while I did experience a spectrum of, of feelings towards my decision within the game. Um, there was this understanding and uh, people are surprised. Sometimes, you know, I have a buddy who's hanging out with me and, and friends who are active players and it hardly comes up. And if it does, it, it's, it's a, you know, a pleasant disagreement. And uh, it's like we were talking about earlier a little bit. I think publicly these things get painted as so adversarial and so contentious and uh, it's as simple as a disagreement. So, um, yeah, I think, the, I think the brotherhood's real. It's, um, anytime I see somebody or meet somebody that played in college or the pros, there's this immediate, um, ground that we can catch up on and share experiences with. And, uh, it's a it's simple because there's been so few people that have experienced, you know, there's 20,000 living NFL alumni. So, um, there's an immediate connection and I, I brotherhood's a strong word. I think there's, uh, a lot that we have in common and, uh, I don't take that lightly. Mm. Now, I got to tell you this, Chris. Um, when I put up on Facebook that we were going to be interviewed, I got inundated with questions that people wanted to ask you. And I only chose three because I didn't want to keep you here all afternoon. But can I ask you three questions from listeners yeah. and just get your response? Feel free to answer quickly. Feel <laughs> free to, uh, you know, you don't have to put your whole shoulder into uh, it. Uh, this this isn't the, what do you call it, the Alabama drill or whatever. Nutcracker, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, nothing like that. This is just uh, give me your thoughts. Okay, so John Jacoby wants to know, it's interesting that Chris went to Wisconsin. Is there something about the athletic department at Wisconsin that allows or promotes social consciousness in student athletes? And he included a picture of uh, Nigel Hayes and Bronson Koenig uh, in his answer. So that is a good question. What is it about Wisconsin that's produced these high-profile, socially conscious athletes? Anything particular, do you think? I don't know that the athletic department is responsible for it. Uh, what I think is that it's a blend of a couple things. UW's always been a bastion for progressivism. Uh, the Wisconsin idea, for any listeners that are familiar with it, is that, um, you know, from here on. So fighting Bob LaFollette was a famous progressive at the turn of 20th century. And, um, you know, UW is the flagship university of progressive thought. And with Berkeley and others in the 60s, it, it was it was that place. Um, so I think it's um, a fertile ground for expressing yourself and discovering new things. Um, I wouldn't say the athletic department uh, is necessarily thrilled about that. <laughs> What I do think is that it's a developmental program. So what, what, I, what I believe happens is they recruit high-character, smart, hardworking kids, um, you know, Nigel, uh, Bronson Koenig, who's, who's done a lot with uh, indigenous people's rights, um, and they're there for four years and take school seriously and do well. And um, it's funny, you know, when you think of guys like, you know, I think Northwestern's another program like that where maybe the, the kids aren't getting recruited to Ohio State or USC or Alabama, but um, go to a tremendous school and are um, encouraged to do well in class, uh, you begin to learn things about <laughs> uh, about the maybe the athletic department, maybe about the NCAA that um, uh, make things uh, interesting. But, um, yeah, I think the athletic department does a good job of handling it. Nigel did a great job while he was there. Um, it's a combination of things, a developmental program in a city and in a, at a school that's uh, – you know, Bastion for, for free thought and self-expression. So um, it's fun to see. I, I'm, I think it's a great thing. I don't think it's a problem at all. Mm. Next question from Timothy Yurkovich. He said, where does Chris see football in 20 years? I think, I think the game will continue to evolve. I, I don't know that it evolves to a safe place. I don't think that, I think that's oxymoronic to, to play football safely. Um, I think there's some really simple solutions that are going to happen here shortly. Uh, I suspect that in the near future, we won't have youth tackle football. Um, Pop Warner was never intended to be played by five-year-olds anyway. So that'll actually just, that's not a progression that's actually going back to the way it should be. Um, And I think, I think brevity is a simple solution. Um, So starting later, and I think we'll see guys continue to uh, play through college and maybe a contract in the league. And and then, uh, you know, save their money and save their health. Um, Also another move that that's going on is less contact in practice. The CFL just uh, instituted that the Ivy leagues instituted no full contact uh, in practice. So I think those things will continue to happen. Um, I'm not against football. I've never been anti-football. I just think it's a matter of informed consent. So I think the game will still be here in 20 years. It should still be here. Um, But we'll see some, uh, hopefully, and I suspect we'll see people wait to play, uh, less hitting during their career, and then perhaps uh, walk away earlier. Okay. And then uh, Kyle Curley wants to know. This is Check this out. He writes, from a Buckeye who was in OSU's marching band the same year as Borland was at Wisconsin, what do you think about collegiate players unionizing and getting compensated for what they bring in? 
Well, uh, I'm in full favor. Um, if let's say he said his name was what was his name? Kyle Curley. Kyle. Let's say Kyle played the saxophone. Um, Saturday at the game. Monday night, if he wants to go to a jazz club in Columbus on High Street and play the saxophone for eighty bucks and tips, um, he's welcome to do that. Um, and football players aren't. And you know, Drexel University in Philadelphia has done some research on the market value of football players and, and college basketball players. And essentially, a scholarship at a place like Ohio State is uh, a quarter to a tenth of what many of the players are worth. So. I absolutely am, and think players should be compensated. Um, I think the first issue is, is what they refer to as nil, name, image, and likeness. Um, the fact that you, you're used to sponsor things um, and you can't even make make money on your own name, um, that's a travesty to me, particularly in a sport like football where a lot of guys leave with mm-hmm. damaged bo- bodies and minds. Um, so yeah, I'm in full favor. I, I don't know the best way that it takes shape, but um, – I absolutely I mentioned Kane earlier. I, I think what he did was, was really selfless and powerful and important. Ramogi Huma, uh, what he's doing with the unionization effort is great. Um, yes, absolutely. Wow. And I guess my last question for you, Chris, and thank you so much for your time, is I always ask this of my guests, like what's the kind of music you listen to? Maybe like for meditation, I don't know. Like what, what's, what, what's the kind of music that gets you in the frame of mind to do what you got to do to get through the day? I have a, it's a tough thing about working in meditation is people expect you to be this, this Zen-like person all the time. Um, the analogy I use is Mark, Mark Cuban owns the Mavericks. He doesn't play power forward. So um, that buys me a little wiggle, wiggle room. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, I love Jason Isbell. Um, Someone needs medical help for the magnolia. It's cold in this house and I ain't going out to chop wood. So cover me. Up. Formerly of the drive-by truckers, he's a Americana country rock artist um i just finished a 30-hour drive this morning and uh i wore him out on the way so really digging jason isbell right now jason isbell whom i have never heard of but you know what i am open-minded and maybe the next time we talk chris i'll be like talk about my favorite drive-by trucker songs with you (laughs) uh all right dave i know uh, i'm from ohio you gotta i gotta apologize all right Oh, you got it. <laughs> no worries, man. Never apologize from being from the great state of Ohio. Although I'm sure Buckeye fans wanted you to apologize once or twice. <laughs> uh, I, I appreciate it. It's been fun. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Chris. Sounds great. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Chris Borland, ladies and gents. I uh, hope everybody enjoyed that. I certainly did. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from the nation. Cover me up and know your Look, The Nation Magazine is the sponsor of this podcast, and if you go to thenation.com slash subscribe, you don't only support this podcast, you get the best in contemporary journalism. Just this past week, we have some amazing issues. We've got articles by Barry Yeoman on North Carolina gerrymandering. This is an issue that you're going to hear about throughout the country. We've got articles on school resegregation that are taking place. We've got articles about the role of hedge funds in both investing in newspapers and perhaps influencing newspapers as well. 
In addition, in the books and arts section, we got a whole article about the book Hillbilly Elegy, White Trash, White Anger, The New Majority by Stephen Hahn. It's about the politics and anger of the white working class. It's really well done. And other issues as well. Man, we talk about movies. We talk about poetry. The Nation is a very, very important publication. It's been around for 150 years. We're going to need it for 150 more. So please go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award and Just Sit Your Ass Down. And my goodness, it's a very atypical week. So first, for the Just Stand Up Award, just stand up. I mean, obviously, what do we have, like several hundred candidates this week at the intersection of sports and politics? But this week, I think just because we didn't cover this in the show, so it's just easier to shoehorn it in here, the comments made by people in the NBA community on Media Day are absolutely remarkable. And my producer, David Tigabu, he put together a sound montage of some of the most remarkable things heard on Media Day, some of the most politically propulsive, the most anti-racist, anti-Trump, because NBA people were just letting it all fly. So here are some words from LeBron James. What I said? Let me hear you say it. Called him a bum. <laughs> it's not a name call. It's a... Uh... Bum. Me and my friends call each other that all the time. I'm not his friend though. Don't ever don't. I don't want to see that on the note. I, he's not my friend. But uh, no, no. That was the first thing that when I woke up and saw what he said about Steph Curry. First of all, <laughs> it's so funny because it's like you invite me to your party, right? But matter of fact, it's not. It's not like you invited me. It's almost like you know, Tom. Hey, I'm not gonna be able to make it. I'm not coming. And then you'd be like, hey, LeBron, guess what? You're not invited. I wasn't coming anyways. Greg Popovich? Obviously, you know, race is the elephant in the room, and we, and we all understand that. But uh, unless it is talked about constantly, it's not going to get better. People get bored. Oh, is it that again? They pull in the race card again. Why do we have to talk about that? Well, because it, it's uncomfortable. And there has to be an uncomfortable element in the discourse for anything to change, you know, whether it's the LGBT movement or, you know, uh, women's suffrage, uh, race, it doesn't matter. Uh, people have to be made to feel uncomfortable, and especially white people, because we're comfortable. We still have no clue of what being born white means. And if, if you read some of the, you know, uh, recent literature, you'll realize it really is no such thing as whiteness, uh, but we've kind of made it up. Uh, that's not uh, my original thought, but it's true. And <laughs> it, 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 it's hard to sit down and, and decide that, yes, it, it's like you're at the 50, you know, the 50 meter mark in a 100 meter dash. Uh, and you've got that kind of a lead. Yes, because you were born white, you have advantages that are systemically. Uh, culturally, psychologically, there. And they've been built up and cemented for hundreds of years. But many people can't look at it. It's, it's too difficult. Uh, it, it can't be something that is on their plate on a daily basis. Uh, 
People want to hold their position. People want the status quo. People don't want to give that up. And until it's given up, it's not going to be fixed. Bradley Beal. To me, you're a clown. Like, you're, that's, like, that's, that's unacceptable. Like, that's not what a leader does. Like, your job is supposed to bring everybody together. And everybody in the world feels like since you got in office, that hasn't been the case. You know, there's a lot of issues going around the world. Like, Puerto Rico doesn't have water and power. Like, they're still part of the U.S., but you're worried about guys kneeling during a national anthem. Well, if you actually look at the reason that they're kneeling versus your own personal pleasure, like, then, then you'll fully understand. But until you do that, you're not going to understand it. So, like, I disagree with what he's doing. I disagree with his thoughts. Um, you know, hopefully as a, as a world, you know, as a nation, we can come together better, you know, and understand what's really at stake here and, and, and the disasters that are really going on in, in everyday life and, and really see it from the perspective of people who actually go through it. Like, it's, it's, it's different to see it from, you know, from a Twitter screen and from social media, but when you have people actually dealing with, you know, nonsense on a daily basis, you know, it, it kind of it comes to a point where, you know, it gets out of hand and it's, it's like people get tired of it. So, Steve Kerr? Uh, we would, in normal times, very easily be able to set aside political differences and go visit and have a great time, and, and that'd be awesome. But these are not ordinary times. Um, probably the most device, divisive times in my life, uh, I guess, since Vietnam, but I was just a kid. I don't remember too much about Vietnam. But uh, because of the differences that exist in the country, um, president made it really, really difficult um, for us to honor that institution. And um, our differences, I think, in terms of our team and our organization's values are so dramatically different. I'm talking in terms of inclusion and, and civil discourse and dignity. And it's hard for us every day. You know, we're seeing the things he's saying. I thought yesterday his comments about the NFL players was as bad as anything he has said to this point. So it's awful. You're talking about young men who are peacefully protesting police brutality and racism, racial inequality, peacefully protesting, hallmarks of our country. And my man, my point guard, John Wall. A lot of stuff I want to say and a lot of stuff I do say. I just ain't got the opportunity to say it yet. But uh, kind of what Brad was saying, I don't I don't like anything he's been saying. I uh, don't respect it. Uh, I feel like you can't control what people want to do. And we have uh, bigger issues in this world that you need to be focusing on instead of focusing on other people taking a knee. I mean, it's something more important. They're doing it for a reason. And you can't do nothing but respect their decision. But you coming out and saying what people are and what they do, you're not being respectful. You're not being mindful. You're a bigger person. We all look at you as to be the president of our nation. Like We want you to help us with these calls, not sit back and argue about the little things and I don't respect it. It's my quarterback. That's my point guard. Wow. And now it's time for the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. And this week, I hope this can become a tradition. This week, the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award was not written by me, but it was written by a listener named Jerome Janik. And I want to invite people to do that. If y'all ever want to call in and tell me who you think 
the Just Stand Up or Just Sit Your Ass Down award should go to, please. I love reading your words. I love this being interactive. And hey, it makes my job easier too. So you can always email me at edgeofsports at gmail.com or you can call us at 401-426-3343 or 401-426-EDGE and let me know who should just stand up and whose ass should just sit down. But here's what Jerome sent to me. He wrote, Dear Dave, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan that the t- and that's the team that 45, Donald Trump, almost owned. Our Hall of Shame quarterback, Jim Kelly, started to yell at LaShawn Shady McCoy, our starting running back, when he stretched during the national anthem. LaShawn McCoy was showing his freedom of speech to protest inequality in the USA. And for those who didn't know, Jim Kelly's son, and this is a really sad story, uh, died of crab disease at the age of six. Then Jim Kelly started Hunter's Hope to fund research. But Jim Kelly has not come out against Trump Care, a bill that wouldn't have covered his son or would not cover other people who are trying to live and survive cancer. Jim Kelly also stays free of charge at Trump Tower. This is why Jim Kelly needs to sit his ass down. Damn, that's intense. Hey, I'm just the messenger here, but it is a hell of a thing to say that Jim Kelly, who clearly has this kind of relationship with Donald Trump, where he's staying for free at Trump Tower, is also criticizing LaShawn McCoy, and also for all of the incredible work that Jim Kelly has done on this issue of crab disease. I mean, for him to not say anything about what Trump Care would do for people uh, who suffer from these life-threatening illnesses, I mean... From, to me, Jim Kelly is somebody who is part of the healthcare community for the amazing work he's done on this issue. And to say nothing about what Trump, my God, I mean, it almost just passed again, what it would have done to people who are in desperate need of medicine. I mean, I just think it speaks for itself. Every week, John Wiener brings it. It's politics without the boring parts. I can't recommend it enough. Every Thursday, it posts on The Nation Magazine's website at thenation.com, which, hey, is another reason to subscribe, thenation.com slash subscribe, because John Wiener really does bring it. He has the most incredible guests, and they really do talk about politics in a way that's engaging as opposed to alienating. So please check it out. Start making sense. You can also subscribe to it at iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now, back to Edge of Sports. Well, look, that's all the time we have for this week's show. I mean, this has been like nothing else. I need to go either sleep for 24 hours or drink 16 five-hour energy drinks. I really want to thank my producer, David Tigaboo, for putting in the hard work here and for producing an entire show that we did last week that we had to put on the damn shelf, which hopefully we can revive at a future date. Thank you as well to everybody out there who's doing the work Not the sports and politics work, but doing the work to actually fight against injustice. The March for Racial Justice is happening September 30th in Washington, D.C., and I know there are satellite marches. Check that out in your city. See if you can be a part of it. Athletes are not going to do this for us. Uh, Yo, to everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.